Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here. Welcome to episode 19 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. I can't believe we're 19 episodes in. In a year from now, <laughs> I won't think this is such a big deal, but I do right now. I mean, I'll start a little bit with a theme that I've talked about before, and it's my ability to let extraneous things clutter my vision so I don't follow through on things I want to do. I have several people in my life who have often said, you know, you always have a reason why you don't get this done. Or you make these grand proclamations and you don't follow through. And I have followed through on a lot. I have to be honest and, and have a little self-love here. But the fact that this is the 19th time, well, probably like the 30th time, but the 19th episode that's starting makes me feel really good heading into a new year and getting through winter and spring and all of that. This episode and episode 20 will conclude or sort of wrap up my focus on dealing with Molly's death and all things about Molly. And last episode was a really hard one for me. And again, I'll reach out and apologize if I was offensive to anybody or made anyone uncomfortable. But I'll tell you what, a lot of my life is uncomfortable. And it was that way for me anyway, a little bit. I'm just a, a public person. And so then to have this horrible traumatic thing and you know, child loss leaves people speechless as it should. It's just unnatural. Children aren't supposed to die. It's hard for people to be supportive when it's a thing that terrifies them. And I definitely found in my grief and in the process of starting this podcast and really having to think about and analyze what I want to say, that some people can rise up and be super supportive and others just can't. And I will say right now, it is not a value judgment. We all do the best we can. And I believe that I have a lot of love and support that is invisible to me because the people that send it and give it either don't want to be seen or are uncomfortable expressing it. Child loss is tricky. So this episode, what I want to focus on is the parts that have been wonderful. And using the word wonderful to describe anything in the last five and a half years seems obscene to me. There's this great guilt that mothers and fathers go through. And I think families in general, especially in child loss, because it's an unexpected thing. The death itself is far more traumatic than many other types of death as far as families go. There's this guilt that comes across and over in this panic that if, I, if I'm okay with something, then it means Molly's death was a good thing and it made better things happen. Like it's, it's just very, very difficult. So my spiritual mentor, KK, who has been a huge piece of support in my grief process once I was willing to put down the substances and focus on healing, you know, she talks about the amazing things she's doing in her life that she likely wouldn't have done had she not lost her mother at a young age. So when she first would say things like that, it was just offensive to me. Like, well, okay, so your mother had to die, so you're a great person, or you know, this bad thing had to happen, so good things could happen. It's hard to separate it out. Sometimes you get to a point where you realize, okay, I can stay here useless and lie in bed all day or drink or whatever and do nothing because I think I'm honoring the memory of my child, but I'm wasting my life. And what can I do in honor of my child to be a better person or to make life better? And what have I learned from this? What have I learned from this is another tricky thing for me because it makes me feel like I made a mistake. Like, okay, you fucked up, Barbara. You did a bad thing. How, what have you learned from it? A lot of my self-deprecation and self-hatred comes sometimes, I think, from just a mindset of abusive thinking and traumatic thinking. I reiterate that a lot because the more I read, 
and the more I educate myself on this and the more I see as a school board member what's going on in our communities with families and kids around the COVID issues and all that time at home and how unsettling times were, I realized that functioning with a trauma mind is probably far more common than we think and could potentially exacerbate a lot of situations in day-to-day life. So for me, Barbara Higgins, when I look at the last two years of COVID, it's not quite two years, the first two years after Molly died were far worse for me than COVID. Now, keep in mind, I have an online job and I'm financially stable. So it wasn't like I was going to lose everything because I couldn't go to work. That would be very, very stressful. But I had that. I had no income for a long time after Molly died and was borrowing money from people to pay bills and really, really struggling and just scraping by. I sometimes don't know how we didn't lose our house (laughs) during those times. In the process of all that, I have begun the process of being able to take the worst thing ever, Molly dying, and look at good things that have happened in the wake of her death, not because of her death, in the wake of her death in the aftermath of her exit. Putting it in my mind that way is just much easier than saying, well, because Molly died, this great thing happened. No, 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 no. Because Molly died, my life came to a screeching halt for a long time. In the wake of that, good things are happening. And maybe I'm just trying to placate my mind, but if that's what I have to do, better to placate my mind that way than than my constant, I hate myself, I hate myself, I hate my life. You know, that was in my head on the daily for a long time. Really, really frustrating and sad. So today, you know, I have a a day planner, which I use sporadically. And then on the front, it says, of all the things you can choose, choose kindness. This episode will be a little bit about how I have found kindness in my grief. And there have been profound examples. Concord Dance Academy and Cindy Flanagan and the Capital Center for the Art putting on that amazing show for Molly's memorial. That was a profound show of support. That was a major I love you from some very big people in our community and and institutions that have been a part of the fabric of Concord for a long time. There were hundreds of little things behind there. So many little teeny things that people did for us, days, weeks, and months after Molly's death. And those are obvious, and I've spoken a lot about them. But, you know, time goes on, and, and people, I think, often don't know what to do, or they're uncomfortable with, you know, how to show. And I know that for me, one of the most stark things that has come up for me is Those that were closest to Molly at the time of her death are the ones that have sort of faded away the quickest. And when I say faded away, I don't mean it in an insulting way, but I don't hear from these people. And sometimes I'll reach out and not hear back. I have to understand that if they were close to Molly at the time she died, then their grief is very profound and a very personal thing for them. But it's hard for me because acknowledging that you still remember that Molly was here saves me sometimes. On the other side of that, there were people that were in Molly's life that had sort of gone to the periphery or out of her life at the time that she died. And those families and people have stepped in and been majorly supportive. And I think perhaps it's because that's a reconnection to Molly for them. Molly had a really good friend, Skylar, and I have to bring Skylar up because she has stepped up and been so utterly supportive and so very willing to remember Molly. And I know that socially, a lot of people didn't know how close she had been to Molly when they were little. Skylar was really Molly's first best friend. And Skylar and her mom, Erin, have been unbelievably helpful. I can pick up my phone and text Erin and she helps immediately. I mean, she's just on the spot right there if I need something. And I'm the same for her because why wouldn't I be? And Skylar has just really made it her mission to bring Molly with her into her life. That gesture is the most profoundly helpful thing. And and it seems small. In my process of losing Molly, I found, I'm going to start with the grief support folks that I have in my life. 
just like people with the less amount of money give the most to charity, the people with the most amount of pain help the others the most. And I think it's because we know what it's like to hurt and we don't want that for others so we can respond well. And we also want to fit in and have a sense of community. Grief is very lonely. Child loss is devastatingly lonely. Not only is my child gone, but it's my responsibility to make sure I act appropriately, that I don't burden others, that I'm happy when I'm supposed to be happy. A lot of the responsibility for other people falls upon the, the parents and the siblings of the person that's died. Very, very tricky time. Very, very difficult. When Molly first died, I, went, I mentioned this before, I went right online to my phone and I found the most amazing people, such amazing people. The first big online group I found was Ellie's Way. And I've talked about Ellie's Way. And here's why I think that grief group has been so helpful. They address all kinds of grief. And so I can get into a group of people that have lost daughters. I can get into groups of people that have lost their children suddenly. I can get into just sort of general grief groups. Ellie's Way doesn't limit itself to child loss. Todd Nigro, who started Ellie's Way after his daughter Ellie died, started it because he lost a child and it was really going to ruin his life. And the best way to save his life was to help others with his knowledge of grief and what he had learned. And he has been profoundly successful. Thousands of people belong to this grief group and online Ellie's Way. And there's a foundation and a website and they're phenomenal. The little gestures. Sometimes I've made the most responses in a month and I get a little shout out on the, on the page that thank you for being so active in Ellie's Way. I've met some amazing people in this grief group. I've brought people into it. They have, you know, thankful Thursdays and, you know, all these different little things each day that can sort of guide a conversation. I've been a moderator at times for those conversations. I haven't done that in a while. I've gotten, you know, I have a baby. I'm a little busy. So Ellie's Way was probably the first website and group that saved me. And I met some wonderful people there. I'll start with a woman named Sonia. I've talked about her before. She and I just click and we sort of have our, our same little circle of grief mommies around the country. When one of us posts, because we post a lot, it comes up. And of course, I've friended all these people on Facebook. So Facebook has been my vehicle and Instagram a bit for finding grief support. And Sonia lives in the Southwest. She lost two adult children. Well, a young adult. I think they were late teens and early 20s. And one was an expected death. Her son, I believe it was Izzy, who was sick. And David died in a car accident. And Sonia, if I have that reversed, I'm so sorry. But one was an expected death. But prior to the expected death came this horrifying car accident. She has double the, I can't imagine. You know, I only had two kids. I, and now I still have two kids. I can't imagine losing two of my kids. You know, that would be incredibly difficult to wrap my head around. And lots and lots of mothers and fathers and siblings in these groups have lost more than one part of their family. So that particular group I like because it's very, very positive. And they do these in-person, well, they did before COVID and we'll start have one again next year. They do in-person like meet and greets. So like there'll be an Ellie's Way convention next year in Pittsburgh. And if you can come, you come and it's like at a hotel, it's like a conference. They offer seminars and touristy things. And so it's a wonderful way to, to meet someone face-to-face -face that's going through what you're going through. Early on in my grief, my friend Nick, who's another great supporter, lost his son Tyler. And so I helped him to get to the Ellie's Way convention. I helped him with his plane fare because I could. And why wouldn't I? And he went and he had a blast. And I know that that gesture on my part gave him five days where he could just be around people that understood where he was at and what was going on. Some other groups online, one is called the Compassionate Friends. That group has been around for years and years and years. And, you know, back before social media, child loss was incredibly lonely. You had to go in person somewhere or call someone on the phone or write a letter. You know, the internet gives us instant access to the world. And in terms of coping with grief, I find this to be amazing and unbelievably supportive. And I'm not sure how I would have coped had I not had these immediate connections. 
So in the compassionate friends, that's another group. They have all sorts of different pages and different groups. So if you lost an adult child, or if you lost a child to suicide or multiple children, there's always a place in all of these groups to find people that have gone through something similar to you. These groups are also moderated well. So if people get too preachy or too religious in one way or too anti-religious in another, you know, and there are lots and lots of small groups. I belong to one that's smaller. It's called Child Loss, Our Children in the Stars. I was led to that group by a friend of mine named Kathy, who I've also talked about, and her daughter Molly died just under a year after my Molly died. Like Sonia, we had a sort of an immediate connection. A, our kids are named Molly, but we share death dates and birth dates and there's some other, we know the similar people and there's just lots of things that really makes me feel that Molly found Molly and those Mollies connected their moms. And she provides tremendous support. What I like most about Kathy is that she's honest. She doesn't hide what she feels. And (laughs) I think she has taken criticism in her grief journey sometimes for being so open and honest and posting so much. But I tell you what, that's what she needs to do. And, And her posts always teach me something. And so I have a list of people from that group that I'm friendly with. Sometimes I remember their kids' names more than their names. And I learn and find out about all these beautiful children that didn't get to grow up. So that's Child Loss, Our Children in the Stars. I also belong to several other groups that provide unbelievable support for me. Marilee's mother, Lisa, I've mentioned her before as well. I know that when I make a post or put a picture up, she, she's one of the first to respond. Marilee and Molly both died of brain swelling. Molly's was a brain tumor erupting. And I think Marilee's issues were never, ever super resolved. They don't really know why what happened to her had happened, but you know, she had a pretty rough couple of days and that was it. Same like Molly, like she was here and then she wasn't. And they were very similar in age and very similar beings. They just really, really shared happiness and had a lot of wisdom for young kids. Without Lisa, sometimes I don't know where I'd be. I've talked about E.R. Myers. He lives in the Midwest North. His son, Vinny, was hit by a car three years before Molly died. You know, and that was a sudden tragic death. They had, you know, a handful of hours to see if he'd ever wake up and he didn't. And he, like me, super struggled his first couple of years, really. And I didn't know him then. Molly was still alive. I wasn't even aware that these places existed. By the time Molly died, he was into his finished year three, going into year four. You're a very different in year four than you are in year one. And so, you know, he has his own Vinnie Myers support group. And in that group now, some of the people in that group have not lost a child, but they have learned so much and been so supportive of us that have, that they are super and wonderful in that group. And that's a smaller sort of private group. I've often thought of starting a group. Maybe I'll start a thousand tiny steps group someday and just a place for people to meet and greet and talk about these things. I don't know. I haven't wrapped my head around how I might really, other than this podcast, be able to use what's happened to me to help others. I'm sharing all this. I'll share one more foundation and then I'll get into the people more. So it's the Moyer Foundation. And Moyer was a pitcher in Seattle and he started a foundation. One of the things they do is they do a lot of addiction support in the Moyer Foundation, but a part of the Moyer Foundation is Camp Erin. And Erin was a little girl that died. And her sister, she was worried about her sister. And I will say, siblings are really the forgotten grievers when it comes to the loss of a child in a family. 13, 10, 8, 6-year-olds can't go online and be in a support group because they're kids. They become very isolated. And sadly, the adults in charge of the kids often dictate how the kids should treat the person whose sibling died. So I know that Gracie oftentimes wasn't treated the way she wanted to be treated at all. Not because people weren't trying to be supportive, but because... They had been told not to talk about Molly or to leave her be. As we went along, I really did notice, and I still notice, that Gracie got up every day and did what she was supposed to do because she's an obedient child and she follows the rules and she's a good kid. But she did it in a really sad state for a long time. 
So Camp Erin, which is a grief camp for kids, was very, very helpful and gave her a lot of good tools for grieving. I think sometimes with my, with my love of kids, <laughs> in my ease of talking with five-year-olds, that maybe my calling in grief support is to deal with children and siblings in the grief loss world. I don't know. This is a process for me. And I would appreciate any feedback you could give. So let me get away from the groups and talk about some of the people. When you've lost a child, finding other people that have lost children is probably one of the most helpful things possible. And along with the people I've just named is Brandy. And Brandy lives in the Pacific Northwest. And she had a son named Jack who died. And Jack was also Molly's age, a little bit older than Molly, but died at 13. Never got to start eighth grade. He finished seventh grade, but didn't get to start eighth grade. And he is my Jack's namesake. My connection with Brandy stems from our similar histories. You know, I have different connections with all of these parents and families. You know, I didn't seek them out. They sort of appeared on my computer. Brandy was the same way. We just, we just clicked immediately. I took a picture of Jack and said, look, I have a picture of your kid on my fridge. And she wrote back and she had a picture of Molly on hers. And, you know, it was just one of those things that we just, we just clicked with each other's kids before we even really clicked with one another. Brandy's story is inspiring to me. And one of the ways that she helps me, again, by being honest, she puts it out there. If she's having a bad day, she thinks nothing of putting a 10 paragraph post describing how she feels. And I read them word for word because always in those 10 paragraphs, do I find a nugget or two or 12 or 500 of truth in my own life. And her willingness to share gives me the bravery to share my own issues and my own stories or to take a step to help myself or to be mad once again at somebody or something from my past and, and let it flow out of me. She actually has gotten close with Gracie and Brandy is young enough to be my daughter. Her kids could be my grandkids. And so she's probably halfway between Gracie and I age-wise. And she's phenomenally supportive of Gracie and loves all the things that Gracie does. So those are great things as well. Sweet Brandy, big, huge, forever piece of my life. You also should check out her Disney home, Disney decor page. If you're a Facebook follower, I think she's on Instagram too. I'm not sure. But oh my gosh, she is crafty and artistic. She's my craft goddess. She's amazing. Unbelievable. The things that she can make in our house is like Disney World house. It's great. So on to some of the other folk, probably one of my biggest supporters now who is kind, kind, kind all the time, even if we don't communicate for a few weeks or days or months is Jen Hunger. So Jen is Rachel's mom and Rachel is the girl who died of the peanut allergy and our families share a connection at Concord Dance Academy. So it's logical that we would become close you know, organ transplants. Rachel's kidney is in Kenny's belly now. And Allie and Gracie have really, really clicked. Again, you have a family with devastating loss. Kenny and I were having a huge fight right after Jack was born. And Gracie freaked out and she called Jen and Jen came right over and she took the baby and moderated the fight. And Gracie went and spent a couple of nights there. It was perfect. It was just what needed to happen. And, you know, here's a family that can barely hold themselves together sometimes. But they understand if we're losing our shit, so to speak, <laughs> they understand and they can come and help in a really non-judgmental way. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that differentiates those that have lost a child with those that haven't is there's no judgment in any of it and no suggestion on how to do it better or what you might want to try ever. I don't think Jen has ever said you should do this. She's often said, sometimes I do this, which is very, very different because that's just, she's sharing herself. And, and if I can't relate to it, then I don't have to relate to it. So the Hunger family has been incredibly helpful. There's another woman named Tammy, and Tammy is a part of Ellie's Way. And Tammy was good friends with Karen Beasley, who passed away. I think her anniversary, Angelversaries, just happened a couple of days ago. And Tammy was a huge piece of Ellie's Way and helping people. And she had had tremendous loss in her life, sibling loss. As an adult, she lost a baby to SIDS when she was just a teen mother. 
she was unbelievably helpful in some of my earlier days when I was really struggling. She just always reached out or private messaged. And so Tammy has sort of stepped in and I'm not super religious, but one of the neat things that Tammy does that I really love is she'll start the Lord's Prayer, Our Father. And then people just comment until the prayer has been said. And one of my favorite things to do is to look at the first one and see how many times the prayer has gone through. The Lord's Prayer always reminds me of AA because it's often said at the end. She's been super helpful. I have some local friends. So I, I taught with a wonderful woman named Marilyn and her son died long before Molly died. And she, again, was one of the first to reach out to say, I'm so sorry and I know how you feel. And actually Ryan's grave is near Molly's grave. So oftentimes when I go visit Molly, he's somebody I'll go over and say hi to. I remember at the time just thinking, oh my gosh, that's the worst thing ever. I'm so glad it hasn't happened to me. And you know, then it did. Nat's dad, John Bressler and his wife, Mary, I have been phenomenally supportive and they do an in-person support group. And I think once that, once COVID is over, they can start this in-person support group again. They do it at the, at the temple, the Jewish temple here in Concord. And it's wonderful. It's just families. I remember going to that. I've only been to two support meetings and the circumstances of our child loss were all completely different. And yet we had all this, all these similarities in our grief. And, you know, one of the most profound moments to me was a couple in their seventies and they lost a child at like two weeks. Their baby was born and got sick and died. Didn't even live a month. And that father still cries, still to this day cries about losing his child. Looking at that, I just get it. You know, you look at how different our circumstances are, but how similar they make us feel. So I have talked a lot in my journey about other types of loss. And if your loss is the biggest thing ever, then it's just as bad as my loss of Molly, because it's the biggest thing ever in your life. You know, that can be contradictory sometimes to when I say how angry I get when people say, oh, I know exactly how you feel. My 99-year-old grandfather just died. Now, you don't know how I feel, but of course, I don't know their relationship either. So as we weave through me trying to be grateful and show compassion to the people who have helped me, I'm rambling on and on about all the complexities of grief. And if there's a message in this one is that grief and dealing with grief, whether it's your own or others, is complex. Really, there isn't a right or wrong way necessarily. Along with people that have lost children, you know, that's a logical support group. I have had some people that haven't lost children that have been incredibly helpful. About two years into losing Molly, I saw an old man on TV. His name is Bill Rogers, which is also the name of a famous marathon runner. So I was attracted right away. And here he was like at 80, early 80s, and he was rappelling down this 23-story building in Manchester, New Hampshire. And I was just riveted. I just liked his story. And his whole story was that he lost his wife, his wife, Natalie. They'd been together since they were 13 and 14, 69 years together. They never dated anyone else. They got married right out of high school. He went and fought in Korea. They came back, started a family, you know, young. Their kids grew up. They have grandkids and great-grandkids. And Natalie got sick and passed away. And that was, it'll be four years, five years in, I believe, in March. Again, just a year after Molly died. And it devastated him. And he tells the story about how he just couldn't, he went to bed and couldn't get out of bed, which is a very common thing. You just don't want to live. You can't, you can't face not having your person. And how Natalie came to him in a dream and told him to get up out of bed and live life. That show me you love me by continuing to live and be a vibrant part of of humanity, you're here. And this man inspires so many people just by showing up and doing things. So he does crazy things. He goes on helicopter rides. He goes on glider rides. He parasailed over the ocean and spread Natalie's ashes on Hampton Beach where they love to spend their time. He just lives so by example. And he, and he put posts on Facebook a lot, all the time. And he'll be funny and say, yeah, I guess I should stop posting. Nope, I'm gonna post twice as much now. <laughs> And he makes fun of himself. He was this adorable little boy with ears that just these ears that stuck out. And he'll talk about how the wind used to blow him away because of his ears. 
So in some of my insomnia nights when I can't sleep, you know, I'll go on the phone and I'll look in my, in my messenger and there's messages from him and it's the middle of the night. I can't sleep either. And we'll chat for a while. This is a man now in his mid eighties who I met through watching him on TV and friending him on Facebook. But the nice connection there is his granddaughter is the mother of his great grandchildren who dance at Concord Dance Academy. So there's this other connection where his family is important to me because of people that I knew independent of him. My daughter, Gracie, just did a report. She's just graduated with an associate's in early childhood and she had to do a final project. And it was a child development class. And so she did stages of development. I think she did Piaget. She, you know, she started with infants and should infants be home or go to childcare? What makes the most sense? Infants and toddlers. And then she did middle school age kids. Now, should you just go home after school and do your homework? Or is it good to be involved in activities and what do activities, sports and theater and such do for you? And our final one was elderly people, the final stages of life, where you might be at a point where you're done with all of your child raising and working. And was my life good? Do I feel good about it? Do I feel bad about it? Have I accomplished what I want to accomplish? And it can be a time of despair for a lot of people. And she used him as an example of how you stay healthy and live a long, wonderful life because you keep a routine, you get up, you have a purpose, you tell people what you're doing, you invite people along. Bill must support the gas industry in this part of the country because he drives every day from his home to the ocean, up to Maine, to the mountains, to campgrounds, all the places he went with Natalie and his family. And he'll go there and take pictures and eat at restaurants and talk to people. He invited Kenny and I to dinner right after we had met him. And we got there and there were three of us and it was a busy night in this restaurant, the Puritan back room. If you're ever in New Hampshire, go to the Puritan in Manchester, the back room, it's amazing. And it was a table with five chairs, this big round table on a busy night. And there was a chair for Natalie and a chair for Molly. I can't even wrap my head around how important that is. When he was 10 and his brother Walter was nine, they went out sledding on a snowy day and the sled went into the street and his little brother was killed by the car, got hit by a car, run over. And he talks about that all the time and how strong his mother was. And then he lost another sibling and then he lost his father. And this poor mom had this loss after loss after loss. And he talks about how strong she is. Never once does he tell me, Barbara, you have to be strong. He reminds me, he reminds me that I am strong and that I shouldn't have to go through what I'm going through. He never once tells me how to feel or how to act. He just acknowledges how I feel and reminds me that behind my grief and my pain is this incredible strength. He is such a fine man. So I have some others. You know, initially my friend Robin, who I had that horrible ending with, more than once in her life, she has put herself out there for me and, and I will be forever grateful for those kinds of things. Those are big gesture things, offering a job, coming over every day. I'm taking you to the beach. You know, all these different things that we did together that were unbelievably healthy and helpful. CDA, Concord Dance Academy and Cindy Flanagan, I've talked about them a lot. There's not actual child loss there, but there's an understanding of trauma and wanting to help. So I have another group of people that I really need to thank, and that would be the CrossFit community. I was just on TV, New Hampshire Chronicle did a special, and there are two websites. One's Parenting Magazine and one is Hearst Television. They've done stories on Jack's arrival. And of course, you can't talk about Jack without going into Molly and all of the grief around Molly. Those specials focus a lot on the fact that I'm a pretty good athlete for a 58-year-old woman. And part of the CrossFit community, and I think it's why the CrossFit community can struggle sometimes, is it's not just a gym where you go and work out on your own. You get coaching. It's a group class. It's, everything is a class. There's open gym time for sure, but there's programming and a class and coaching, and you can ask questions. And you try to generate a feeling of community. A workout is never finished without a fist bump or a high five. Questions are answered. Workouts are scaled. So you can have a world-class athlete and someone that's just joined that has 100 pounds to lose. And they work out together, side by side, essentially doing the same thing. Scaled versions that, you know, the elite athlete might be, you know, lifting heavy weights with a barbell. And the new person might be doing lighter weights with a dumbbell. But I'll tell you, they're doing the same thing. They're doing CrossFit. And in my job loss, it was CrossFit that saved me. And I've talked about John Farwell. And, and actually, I would have to mention Sky and Ian Butman 
and Brad Newberry, those people were huge pieces of my life. As my CrossFit journey morphed and went along, Nick Poulin, who I work with now, I coach with him at CrossFit Amoskeg, have stepped in to become a big part of what makes us okay. There are so many, many, many coaches and families connected to CrossFit. A loss a year and a half before Molly died, Blake Marston died, and he was a Navy SEAL, and he died skydiving, jumping out of an airplane drill, and something happened, and he, and he died. And so it was horribly tragic and traumatic. And his family, oh my gosh, when Molly died, Blake's mom came and went grocery shopping for us and all that. But that's a CrossFit connection. And so at the time of Molly's death, I had had, had a really rough year leading up to Molly's death, but it was CrossFit that you know, I went, I never missed. I just went and went and went. I went to CrossFit, I went to CrossFit, I went to CrossFit. In the, the wake of Molly's death, John and Benny, good old Benny. Benny doesn't come anymore. I think he beat himself up too much, but you know, they came up to the hospital and saw Gracie. Brad and Ian came up and saw Gracie and saw us when Molly was on life support. John and CrossFit Ironborn became a regular piece of what made us okay. I always say there's no room for assholes at CrossFit. If you're a jerk, you're not going to last because, because it's a hugely community-oriented place. And its main focus, the founder of CrossFit, his main focus founding this fitness program and designing it was longevity and healthy life, functional fitness, stay out of the nursing home, do at 95 what you did at 65. Like there's really no reason not to be able to do all these things. So much of our health issues comes from sitting at desks all day and not living these active lives. In the CrossFit community, a couple of people also stand out. So one, one is a woman, KP. I love KP. I met her in CrossFit way, way, way before Molly died. She's one of the early, early White Mountain CrossFit folks and then Ironborn folks. And she and I, we know each other through CrossFit. You know, she struggled with some health issues and was very private about it, but really, really worked hard to overcome a cancer diagnosis. And she's healthy now and she's phenomenal. And in the, in the beginning, when we had all the Molly B t-shirts, she bought one and she'd work out in it. And to this day, five and a half years later, if she's traveling somewhere and brings that shirt and she'll put it across her suitcase or she'll hang it up on a hook in her hotel room. And she travels the world, Europe and Asia, all over. And that Molly shirt goes with her everywhere. She bought some tables for me. I was selling a bunch of furniture and she set some flowers up and she's like a little Molly on my deck. A little Molly on my deck. She said my daughter's name. She typed it and, and messaged it to me. There are times when those teeny tiny things are what makes me okay. <laughs> okay to get up and do what needs to be done next in my house or in my work or in my life. Unbelievably kind, thoughtful gesture. The Facebook page that I'm working to integrate into the Molly B Foundation page, Molly B Around the World, was founded by a group of girls that danced with Molly. And they're the ones that started take a picture of yourself in your Molly B shirt and show it to me. To this day, when somebody happens to be wearing it and they just take a selfie and send it to me, a text message, hey, thinking of Molly today. Somebody said her name, somebody thought about her, somebody pictured her in their head. And KP to this day does that. She'll just, she'll respond, she'll follow along. In terms of things that Molly liked to do, so CrossFit was really my thing. You know, the Molly B Foundation sponsors RB Productions, but that doesn't mean that people have to reach out the way they do. And Clint Close, who's, you know, sort of the director of that, directed a couple of plays that Molly had been in when she did RB, is unbelievable. Reaches out all the time. How are you doing? I haven't seen you for a while. Can I stop by? What's up? Let's, you know, let's get together. We both get busy and time goes by. We have all these great plans, again, that don't happen. I'm hoping to change that. But he's created a culture around Molly that allows her to continue to be talked about. When Molly is talked about at RB, it's not like, oh my God, this dead girl. It was like, yeah, Molly. Yeah, she died a long time ago, but she loved theater. And in the Molly B scholarship, to get it, to go to RB Productions on a Molly B scholarship, you have to fill out an application. And part of it is, how can you use what you're good at to help other people? How will you work? How will you use theater to be a good friend? Because that was Molly. She really felt like she found her place. 
This past year, there was a play where there was a girl that didn't know anybody and she was sort of off to the side. And Clint shared with me that he just pulled a couple of his veterans and said, come on now, how would Molly treat that girl? You know, how do we do, how do we do it here at RB? How would Molly, how would Molly help her to fit in? And those girls, boom, were on it. And the rest of the week, that girl that had been afraid to sort of jump in and insert herself was a part of everything that went on, everything. And so here's a group of people, many of whom have never met Molly. Talk about her like she's still here. And I want her to still be here. I mean, I want her to still be here, but you know, nothing short of a ghostly apparition will make that happen. So that support from RB and, you know, and it stems into the community players and it stems into a peg at Runlet and it stems into her elementary school teachers in those communities as well. They really do all remember Molly are unafraid to speak of her, which is helpful to me. A couple of other school district folks are super, super helpful. So Rana Faith, Rana was an assistant principal Gracie's freshman year and Gracie really missed her when she left. And Rana reaches out all the time. She was down here in Concord one day from her home up north. I needed help wrapping a Molly basket. And I just put a thing out on Facebook. Can anyone come over? Here she is like in between meetings. It's not like she's hanging out. She came to my house and we put the basket together and we wrapped it up. It was amazing. And she's another one that she'll just reach out. She'll thank me for sharing something. She'll private message me. They're not huge. They're not huge gestures. She just remembers that I'm here. Another one is Heather Barker was a, an assistant principal when Molly was at Rumlet. And she talks to me all the time. Again, not these big giant gestures. She's not sending presents and all this. She's just saying, hey, I'm aching with you today. Hey, I'm crying with you today. Hey, it's nice to see you have a happy face, but I get it. She just sends these simple, really kind messages. And I feel like I need to thank her for that because she's wonderful. Another person in my life that's been really, really helpful in my grief is Pam Mark. I've known Pam for a long, long time. Again, we, we aren't like friends, like we would go hang out, but we have, we have so many connections in our lives. Growing up, I graduated high school with her brother and then her, I don't know if it's her father-in-law or her grandfather, her father, but this guy named Cliff Smith, he's such a good runner. He's this old man and he runs all the races and I've just known him forever. So we have these connections through the running community and through being Concord High School alumni and just Concord natives. She reached out and she had a loss, a grief loss. I believe it was a parent. And, you know, again, a parent's different than a child, but it really, really devastated her. And so I led her to Ellie's Way and she has become an integral part on that grief site. And she's phenomenal, such a supporter in my grief. And so I support her back. We talk all the time about what it's like to live through losses and have these black holes in, in our day-to-day -day lives and what's missing. And she's been phenomenally supportive of me and my grief journey. Again, not giant gestures, just kindness is the best way I can describe it. She really just reaches out when I'm really struggling and feeling like I'm not going to make it. She seems to know and have this, you know, intuition about it. And finally, someone else I want to mention, I'm looking down, so I apologize here if you're watching me and I'm looking down. I have a list and I know I'm leaving off hundreds of people, but a girl named Casey Ingraham. So Casey was in a play with Molly. They were the Cheshire Cat. Molly was the head and Casey was the butt. <laughs> And there was other other girl in the middle whose name I don't remember. And it was just really well done, this particular version of Alice in Wonderland. And they were so funny. And when Molly died, Casey really fell apart. It really, really wrecked her and devastated her. And Gracie has maintained a good connection with her, as have I. She's been a big piece of our grief journey. Again, not super close to Molly at the time of her death, but a big piece of Molly's story. And so she is another one who, you know, she has a heart condition, has had several heart surgeries and lived a not easy life. And she's outspoken you know, not afraid to say it like it is, which can be hard, not only hard in general, but hard for a teenager and hard for a teenage girl. I think too, sometimes girls in our society can struggle with being outspoken, you know, oh, you're a bitch. <laughs> Casey's not a bitch, but she's a badass, I'll tell you. But she's also been utterly willing to step in and be supportive, to reach out when I'm struggling, to accept help when I give it to her. 
And we just have this connection now. And I love watching her progress. And she's very open with what she's doing and how hard she's working and that anyone can overcome. My favorite thing about her is she has this giant scar and she wears these beautiful low-cut outfits and she doesn't hide herself. She just, this is who I am. Love me or leave me. And what a wonderful, wonderful quality to have as a young woman, especially in such a physically judgmental society. I love watching her progress and how she's doing. Another girl that was never super good friends with Molly, but has stepped in to be supportive is Jane Siegel. Jane suffers from epilepsy like Skylar does. So Jane understands what it's like to have a debilitating illness. You lose a lot when you're that way. She sometimes feels like epilepsy has robbed her of a good life. And when you're a teenage girl and you can't go out because you might have a seizure and having the seizure is funny looking or creepy looking or embarrassing. And then she has to go back to school and everyone's looking at her weird and She's had a horrible time with it and she deserves to be angry and upset and pissed at the world for this disease. But what does she do? She advocates, she speaks out and she has reached out several times. Actually, someday she's gonna be a guest on this podcast because she has a lot to say and a lot to share. And she's been a huge piece of what makes us okay, for sure. Two other people. So my friend Polly, I haven't seen Polly for a while. Polly and I have been friends forever. We don't even really know where we met. I mean, she has had a life, talk about a trauma-filled life. She's, she's experienced all different sorts of trauma. Not my stories to tell, but you know, she has no parents now. Both of her parents have passed away. Her mother just recently. She has had a tumultuous relationship with her family. She has suffered physically. Oh, she's had some terrible physical ailments and several surgeries. She has just really, really not been given an easy path in life. And she is the first one. Again, when Molly died, she was at the hospital in a day and she had this beautiful necklace. There was a group of us called Colleen's Girls and Colleen Huffman was a Baha'i that died years ago, an old woman. And she, her family was away at the time she was put into hospice. And so there was a group of women that went and visited her. We just took turns. So 24 hours a day, the whole time she was there in hospice, she was never alone. And Colleen had given Polly this beautiful Baha'i necklace with the greatest name. It's an Arabic symbol for God. And so she took it off and put it on me. And I wore it for two years. I wore that necklace every day. I never took it off. I showered with it. I worked out with it. I'm amazed it didn't break. It was very delicate. It wasn't supposed to break. My sister, Kathy, was going through something traumatic and I took it off and gave it to her. And like two days later, it broke. <laughs> it's not funny, but I find these things to have meaning sometimes. Polly and I had not spoken for a long time. At the time of Colleen's death, we really reunited as friends. And we've been on again, off again for several years. Sometimes we're involved in our lives, daily lives, and other times not. I do know, whether we're talking to one another or not, that if I needed help or needed something, that Polly would be at my door. And I would do the same for her. That's just how we are. We go way back to when I first came back to Concord even some high school memories. She's a bit younger than me. So I was out of high school and out of Concord when she was in high school. But we just have had a lot of similar people that supported us in our young life. So I bring up these people because in my five and a half years of losing Molly, these are people who have never once felt the need or the obligation to reach out. They just have. A, because they've lost a child, so they get it. Or B, because they're naturally empathic and helpful and, and want to reach out and be a part of somebody's grief journey. The last two groups of people I'll talk about are some high school friends that reinserted themselves into my life in a great way and my college track team. I've talked about my friend Jill who suffered the losses of her horses. We haven't talked in the last couple of weeks, but she was an immediate listener of the podcast. And I know that in her loss of these beautiful animals, she really struggled with finding support and feeling like validated in her grief. You know, and so much of however we feel is validation that our feelings are okay. And we can't sleep in the middle of the night. If I say I can't sleep, she'll message me, I'm awake too, and we'll talk back and forth. She lives in the Midwest. She has been a huge support for me. And then my seventh grade math class, Bridget, Karen, Deb, <laughs> we get together and have dinner, and that's been incredibly supportive as well. My friend, Selena, she is nonstop supportive. When I start to lose my shit, calls me Barbara Jean, and she'll send me a message and tell me that I'm going to be okay. 
as you can see, I have an army of people who help me. A year and a half after Molly died, my college coach, Bruce Lehane, died of ALS. And that's a pretty horrible way to go. And he was married to Leslie and Leslie's twin sister, Lisa. They both ran for, well, Lisa ran for BU, but they both grew up in Massachusetts. And Marty Shea, who was my college roommate for a couple of years, we were in awe of them in high school. Like, oh my God, the Welch twins. You know, now they have different last names because they're married. At the time Bruce was sick, our coach, we tried to get together before he died. I went down and said goodbye and Marty went and said goodbye. It was a beautiful process. And the way that Leslie, his widow, handled his departure from the physical world was beautiful. And of course, weddings and funerals bring people together. And so our BU, we call ourselves the BUOGs. We are the original group of female athletes when the NCAA expanded to include women in the fall of 1981. And so we've gotten together two times as a big group. And then once a small group of us got together and then a group got together to watch the Boston Marathon when Joni turned 60. We've renewed a friendship and it started, you know, at Molly had died and then our college coach had died. So we have a wonderful rapport. When I'm really struggling, I'm Facebook friends with a number of them. And when I'm really, really struggling, you know, I always get a text message or a reply or an instant message from my college folks. Always, always, always. And so it probably seems like I've left out my family and... You know, family is funny. I have an amazingly supportive family. Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. But some family is blood family. Some family is married into family. Some family is blood family that nobody knows about. <laughs> I have an interesting family and it's everywhere. Within every facet of my family has been unconditional love and support. I know that people handle it differently. So I see a lot more of some family members and a lot less of others. In the early days, my mother's grief was so profound that it was hard for any of us to support each other. All we could do was be a mess beside each other. But again, it's nice to have a family to be a mess beside of that's on the same side of the page as you are when it comes to grieving the loss of a child. I've been lucky that way as well. I look at some of my compatriots in this journey and the family support is nil. I don't know what I would do. I often say that in many ways in the tragedy of child loss, I am incredibly lucky and blessed in how it happened for me. Molly didn't suffer. She had headaches and vomiting. So yeah, she suffered, but that would be a few hours at a time, a couple of times a month or once a week in the end. But she was alive and vibrant on Saturday, fell asleep on Sunday and never woke up. I'm so lucky. She actually died May 2nd. And then they declared her dead May 6th. And we unplugged her May 7th. Three times Molly died. Three times. Every time I was there, I was with her, talking to her, holding her hand, telling her I loved her. She was never alone. She didn't suffer. She was never alone. Her death wasn't my fault. Did some of my actions play a part in how much attention I was paying to her? Yes. Do I have huge guilt? forever. I try very hard to move through it, but it's difficult. But she wasn't murdered. She didn't kill herself. She wasn't tortured. She didn't disappear. She wasn't sick for two years, withering away. Her death was as trauma-less as a death can be. It wasn't violent. She wasn't ugly to look at. People lose their children in horrifying ways. I can't tell you the number of times I've thanked God or the universe or whomever for how lucky I am. And I am. I have a grief story I can lay the blame on her death. If there's blame to lay, it would be on the medical community, not on my treatment. I took her to the doctors over and over again. And analyzing all of that is something I probably can't do in a podcast, <laughs> maybe not for a long, long time. But in the process of owning up to and, and acknowledging your child's death, I'm her mother. It's my fucking job to keep her safe. And she's dead. That's as true as it gets. The details can be extraneous. That's how it feels on my worst days and on my best days, elements of that statement remain true. But all of these people that I've mentioned, college friends and high school friends and childhood friends, neighbors, acquaintances, 
people that send messages. You know, with all the news about Jack, I've gotten so many kind, kind emails and texts and messages of support from people that have seen the story, really intrigued by it. So I have my home CrossFit gym I go to, and I go to a MomStrong class at a different CrossFit, CrossFit Amesbury, and that gym is phenomenal. They have just pulled Gracie, myself, and Jack into their family, and we're a part of that community now, a vibrant part. I love it. And it gives me, I have to drive an hour to get there, and I'm there an hour, and then I spend some time going out for lunch or something after, and you know, it's like a six-hour endeavor to do a 45-minute workout, but the days that I go are some of the best days of my week, so... So I'm lucky. So in this podcast, after really feeling like, you know, I'm obligated to share the bad stuff because bad stuff happens. People do terrible things. There are people that also do wonderful things. And in my experience, the most wonderful things have been the smallest gestures, the kindest, sweetest gestures that get you through a day and, and make everything okay. And of course, there's Gracie and Kenny who in their own grief, we all support one another and strive to make each other's days as easy as possible. You know, Gracie, if Gracie wants to do something, I never say no. She's not spoiled, but you know, if she really wants to do something and there's, and we can make it happen, then I don't say no. And she doesn't ask for much. She's just kind and hardworking. And she completed her associate's degree today from NHTI in early childhood education. So I'm really proud of her. She's a college graduate, halfway to a bachelor's degree. So that's it. That's the kindness in my grief. I hope that some of these stories can help you to find the people in your life. I do know that when I'm really struggling, when I put my mind to these people, I feel better, even if they aren't reaching out in that moment. And that's an important thing for all of us to learn. So I'll have one more episode. Episode 20 will be a much more nuts and bolts episode about specific things I did to get through the last five and a half years and what happens next and how I continue to look back. I hope you had a wonderful New Year's. I hope you have some good goals for 2022. Keeping it real. It's just another year. It's just another year. As always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.